There she is. Here comes sunshine right now. You're muted, Kylie. I am. Of course I am. So sorry. Here I am. Okay. Well, there you are. And now we can begin since we found since you found your way to us. All right? All right. All right, everybody ready? So off we go. Okay. Well, um, Good good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day from Kyoto from uh, Otatahi Christchurch, New Zealand. Um, I'm Joel Porter, and I'm here with some of my good friends and colleagues on this side of the planet. And we'll let people just introduce themselves however they want to, um, and um, and then we'll jump into the conversation, and we'll we'll see where it goes. So we welcome everybody from all over the world. And um, let's get this through and get into this conversation about motivational interviewing as a way of building good practice. So, um, Kylie, why don't you say hello and where you're from and who you are? Sure. So I'm Kylie McKenzie and I live and work on Wadawurrung land uh, in the outskirts of Ballarat. And I'm coming to you from Ballarat Health Services today. So I've um, been training MI for a, a long time now and have been pretty active in the in the mint community. And uh, hopefully there's some of our colleagues that uh, Helen and I and trained with Terry Moyers in the, the mint TNT in, um, in Melbourne in 2015. Seems like a long time ago now, but hi, everybody. Yeah, you're no stranger to the show. No, Kira, um, uh, Tenika de Kato. Um, Ken McMaster from Ototahi Christchurch as well, South Island of New Zealand. Um, yeah, my, my background's in um, social work, having uh, worked in criminal justice, family violence, sexual violence uh, for a long time. And uh, yeah, I've um, been using MI skill sets to train people. Uh, in effect, a practice to soften some of the kind of pushback, which we'll, uh, no doubt we'll talk about today. Great. And Helen. Hello. Helen Mentha. Um, so I'm coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations here in Melbourne, Australia. So my main background is the drug and alcohol sector. When, when I run training, I'll often say, which is where MI came from and then it escaped. Um, and <laughs> I joined Mint in 2007 and for the last, it's 12, coming up for maybe 13 years, uh, most of my work has been training people, introducing people to motivational interviewing. Kia ora, Tiffany. Oh, kia ora, i te whānau. Noa hea ki te tau tōku whā, ngā ngārei te hiki te maunga, oai hua te awa, ka hangi me te uru, kura heka kawa te hapu. Uh, so, uh, 
Hello folks, I'm Tipini Pagan. I just said um, the waves of Tahuki are my mountain, uh, the fruitful waters is my river, and uh, my sub-tribe is Kurehikakaua, my tribe is Kahangunu, and the place where my family descends from is a marae called the fruitful waters, Waihua. And I think I've been, actually Joel was a big part of my journey into um, the training of, of, of MI, and, and I attended the Mint uh, forum and training in Krakow in 2013, um, but really was inspired in, 20, in 2002 by a workshop that Terry Moyers did with the uh, Salvation Army Bridge program, and she just got us on the floor to do a value card sort and the importance and confidence of all this, and she just sold me on EMI. And so from a very powerful experience, I've grown a very great fondness for this way of being. All right. All right. Well, we all have we all have really close connections in this community, that's for sure. Okay, so we have a we have a we have, a, we have an interesting topic this morning to have a conversation on. And that's MI as a catalyst for, for ongoing skills building. And I guess kind of the kind of the question that came up was does um does motivate does, does just practicing motivational interviewing, learning motivational interviewing and practicing, and does that also influence other areas of practice? Um, and there may, there may be more to that question, and that's absolutely fine. As people know, this is a conversation more than a lecture. Um, and what what I thought I'd start with is for and I know. I'm, uh, I'm springing it on you, you four, um, is to think about your own practice. Because, you know, we all were psychologists, counselors, social workers doing something before we met motivational interviewing. And how has motivational interviewing um, influenced your own practice or strengthened or, or whatever it's done to, to, make it, to make it different or better? Um, and, you know, I'll give you a, if somebody wants to start off, that'd be great. Um, and then we'll go from there. And then we'll take it, break it out wider to a more general conversation. I'll start, Joel. I, I think I'll probably end up building on what everybody else says because, you know, that's, that's the way my brain works. But the first thing that um, hits me when you say that is, and, and like uh, Tiffany, you were a big part of, of my um, initial introduction to motivational interviewing and came to the wilds of Ballarat and ran a, ran a, a two-day training, the second day of which was just for our psychology team. And I think for me, meeting MI was like meeting something that helped me to understand what I did when I did it well, um, which means that sometimes I recognised I wasn't doing it as well as I could be, but at other times, I, I would do something and it would work really well. And MI gave me um, a framework for understanding when I got it right. Um, and it also helped me to be able to articulate the skills that I was using. And I think the thing that I've talked about more in my trainings in the last sort of three to four years is about this, this idea of intentional use of skills, um, that, that it is... It, it is actually being aware of what you're doing when you're doing it and doing it, you know, with a big heart, but doing it in a way that is 
supporting people for what they want to achieve, but using using skills that I would be able to describe and articulate afterwards. So for me, it gave me gave me words to describe what I was doing when I did it well. And, and that's a really powerful thing because then you are able to continue to hopefully do things well. If I might add on that, the other side is it helped me understand the things that I was doing that weren't going well and why that was happening. Whereas, you know, prior to meeting some of the principals, I just probably would have felt a bit demoralised or sad. Whereas this, ah, this is what's happening. I always remember one, um, an appointment where I'd gone into work, and this is definitely pre-pandemic because I really probably shouldn't have been at work. I was sick. I should have probably been in bed. And this client had come into an appointment and it took her like three bus trips or something. It was a real journey for her to come into the appointment. And I was sitting there with this little loop going around in the back of my head going, I'm wasting her time. I'm giving her nothing. She's come all this way. I'm wasting her time. I'm giving her nothing. Get to the end of the session and she goes, I think that was our best appointment yet. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, other approaches would have been, oh, you weren't doing it right. Whereas Emma was like, oh, yeah, just shut up. It helped, I think, get a lot more learning. Like it helped me make a lot more sense of, ah, that's why that wasn't going well. And you see that a lot in trainings as well, where you have people kind of, you see people reliving maybe a recent encounter with a client going, oh, that's what might have been going on. And in that they go, oh, there's some optimism. I've got some wriggle room. This isn't mysterious. There's maybe something different that we could do here. And I think that also gives people hope. Yeah, certainly sort of probably building on a bit from what you're saying to the Kylie and, and you, Helen, was am I doing what I think I'm doing? Or, or yeah, do I th- is, is what I'm actually doing what I think I'm doing? And um, I remember hearing some research saying that we that generally we don't have a, pat- a particularly accurate perception on our ability. And um, and then you know, because, and I guess that was a challenge because I tended to think that I had a, a reasonably accurate self-reflection uh, that, that I was pretty, um, what's the word, um, realistic in my appraisal. And when I started to listen to some of the recordings before I was really sort of familiar with MI, um, I was listening to self, I was listening to reply I had very little concept of listening to understand. And MI certainly given me the skills to listen to understand rather than listen to reply or give information. Yeah, I remember my, one of my very early experiences as a, new, as a new social worker, brand new social worker, you know, probably a bit arrogant, the arrogance of youth, thinking I kind of had a pretty sussed and... I remember sitting on a, on a medical ward and going to, I was referred to this guy who, young dad, who, um, relatively young family, but chronic alcohol stuff, you know, really problematic stuff, you know, liver, liver uh, readings off the chart and things like that. And I, 
you know, I remember rocking up to his bed and saying, I'd like to talk to you about your drinking. And he said, you can just F off now. And, uh, and at that point, it was kind of like, I think the other lessons in life that you think, oh, that didn't really go so well, beam me up, Scotty. And, uh, and so, you know, I think sometimes we learn from what doesn't work. And I think our, sometimes our training has let us down in terms of, um, I guess, that stuff around what, what's the approach? What's the, how, do, how do we invite someone into a conversation about really serious kind of things? And so that probably um, was one of the catalysts that got me really starting to think about where we might go. And, of course, I was really fortunate to do some work with Alan Zwieben in 1985 at the Addictions Research Foundation in Toronto um, and, uh, and coding. You know, you talked about coding, Tiffany. Uh, coding some, uh, some, some transcripts as a part of a kind of a, a short scholarship there. And uh, that got me really thinking about that notion of, um, yeah, what are we saying and, and how do we know that uh, those responses are landing and those responses are saying to the person, I understand what you're struggling with. So that was kind of some of my kind of initial um, uh, work in, in the field. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> like Helen, most of most of my kind of professional work has always landed around drug and alcohol. Um, and being educated as a psychologist and trained <clears throat> in the in, in addiction treatment in the United States, it was quite a in the in the mid 80s um, and 90s, it was quite a quite a different landscape than it is now. And um, it was it was very, um, very much like a rodeo rehab was, you know, you'd, you'd try to try to break them and get them to submit and admit that they're, you know, an alcoholic and, you know, and, and, and as a young counselor, and then a young psychologist, you know, you, you do what you're taught. And, you know, and, and I remember reading Bill, the first edition of the MI book and thinking um, that there was a different way that intuitively felt right to me about working with people, um, about, you know, allowing kind of the, the sort of more empathic and um relational aspects of counseling and psychotherapy while working with people with drug and alcohol problems because it seemed like you know there was there were these clients who it was fine to be open and empathic and and caring and and non-confrontational with but then there were alcoholics and drug addicts who you had to kind of you know jump in the ring with and try to get them to tap out um and i read the book and i was just like I can't go backwards from here. You know, I didn't know what MI actually was, but I knew the thinking behind it was enough to get me to kind of want to move forward and learn how to do it. Um, because it was clear to me that, you know, what we were doing wasn't really helping most of the people, you know. But, and then, you know, the, the further you, you, you dive into MI, you realize that, yes, yeah, a pretty simple, but it's a very sophisticated approach. And there's a lot of moving parts. And then you you get into coding and you get into fidelity and you realize that, you know, this is something that you can, as, as y'all were saying, particularly, you know, we're saying there's a, you know, something you get immediate feedback on how the session's going by, by how people are talking. And then I found 
that, and this is kind of moving into the to the to the broader topic, is that you know in my in my real life practice, you know I I'd love to say that you know every time I sit down with somebody we end up doing motivational interviewing. I think we probably end up doing something more something like motivational interviewing. You know where I will I'll be utilizing you know ors you know as a primary skill set, but I'll be thinking in regards to how people are approaching this idea of making changes in their life and how they feel about it and how they think about it. And, and that when people are talking positively about it, it's a good idea to, to work with them so they can do that more, irrespective if we're doing, you know, um, anxiety treatment or we're, we're, we're working on trauma or whatever it is, is that there are things about motivational interviewing that you know work well and play well with other approaches and i found that when i when i do that it enhances those that other work so i really be, i believe that practicing mi for the same reasons that a lot of what y'all said has made me a better counselor psychologist therapist whatever mainly because what tip was saying is it it, it tells me just to listen to what's going on and then to have some have some skills to do with what I hear, opposed to give information and think of what my response is going to be. I think, Joe, we also spoke, we all spoke, I think, about the things that we left behind or that we we aim to leave behind, even if it sneaks back in sometimes. And and that I that idea of stop doing things that that aren't helpful is is a I think a really useful one. Um, and I know uh, uh, one of the participants uh, in our one of our allied health training groups, her feedback on the feedback form was, as a clinician, I don't have to do all the talking. That that was her te- key takeaway from the session, uh, and and it was you know not a psychology profession professional who who gave that feedback, and and I think that it's that kind of thing that helps helps with. Um, you know, core skills and works with other other approaches. And, um, you know, I went to Scotland a couple of years ago and coded uh, for MI uh, 60 consultations of GPs. So it was part of the, part of the GPs being general practitioners. I know that term doesn't travel all around the world. Um, it was part of a, uh, uh, a database of communication sessions. So these these uh, general practitioners had uh, generously said they would participate in a study where their routine consultations would be recorded. And so I had uh, permission to go in and record those. And the standout for me probably, and there are lots of like really interesting sort of MI geeky things about it as well, but the standout for me was that I think it was very close to twenty percent of those consultations had a codable um, had a codable statement that could have been seen as confrontation. So you know, there's a really high hit rate of consultations that have a confrontation. You have to do this because otherwise, you know, what what you're doing is absolutely not okay. Those kinds of statements in there and. If we could just stop doing that, then what a difference that might make. Mm. So I think, and we all spoke about that a little bit for ourselves, that that's what MI gave us. It's like, oh, oh, when I do that, it doesn't help. 
Um, and so I, I think maybe, maybe, maybe sometimes we try to encourage people to work towards this gold standard of MI, whereas if, if somebody's only, and Helen and I have talked about this, if somebody's only takeaway from an MI session was stop confronting people, I'd be pretty Absolutely. happy with that. Yeah, I'll, yeah, can I build I'm on that? We've sorry, can I build on that? Oh, yeah, because again, that's funny, cause I, having think about the field of practice I work in, which is around sexual violence, family violence, and criminal justice, often there has been that history of kind of telling people that what not to do, and um, and and not understanding that um, the reason why they are doing what they do often has a, a much bigger story involved, and so that idea of um, disengaging people from from the work and I think that's what it effectively does when we start to ride people really hard in terms of trying to impose our values our beliefs our ways now it's not to excuse behavior not to say that what people are doing is okay but we've got to be much more careful and engaged and we don't want to replicate actually abuse of practice that actually they're doing in their own lives towards other people and I, I and that's been probably one of my sort of um, passions in terms of bringing MI to the field has been don't replicate what people are doing in, in, in their lived experience. Um, uh, we've got to give them a different model and just a different experience of relational being relational I think in some ways. So, yeah, so I resonate very much with what you're saying Joel and uh, what you're saying Carly. I guess I should add to that I don't go into training sessions and tell people that they've got to stop doing things. It's about trying to have, <laughs> have people uh, experience what it feels like when they're told, when they're pushed, and and to to make that connection like like we were all describing. So that's a really, that's a really good point about how you get that across to other people. It's not the same way that they they may be trying to get things across to the people that that they're working with in their helping profession. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, well worth well worth remembering that. I really like. Um, I think it was Denise Ernst highlighted a, a statement from an early edition of MI that was then taken out. Confrontation is the goal, not the method. And this idea that change is confronting enough, mm. and being able to actually sit in the reality that you're in and tolerate that and experience that to then work out, well, what do I want to do with this? Where do I want to go? What decisions do I want to live with is confronting as hell. That's confronting enough. So the last thing we want to do is add confrontation in the process because that's just going to take our attention away from the real challenge, which is where am I and what do I want to do? I love You're the fact that the life. most confrontational you might get in MI is a double-sided reflection, is, is a you know double-sided reflection. Yeah, and, and I love that. That that's you know, given that I was in a treatment center in the very, you know, I was so excited. This is 1989, I was so excited to be there. And I remember being asked that, you know, we're in, in a group and four of us were sort of introduced to the house and they asked you, what brings you here? And I remember saying, I feel I've been led here. And the very first words I heard out of the facilitator's mouth was, you hear because you're a fucking addict. And it was said just like that. And so that was so certainly the days of confrontation that you're talking about there, Joel, were, were alive and well in the, in the 80s. And I think thinking back to that experience and then realising that that changing 
in, in the trainings that, that I'd been doing, people shifting from a sense of feeling like they had to persuade somebody to just reflecting back their, their ambivalence uh, was powerful enough to create that sort of dissonance that might help them move. So, I mean, I, I like that we're settling around confrontation because that was a that was the one thing when I read in the MI1 book that really kind of kind of took me aback and opened up my eyes. And then Bill and uh, Randy White went on to write that really nice paper about confrontation and addiction treatment. Um, but why do you think, what do y'all think that confrontation has become sort of the, the first line of, of uh, dare I say, attack, um, as opposed to pushing it way back. What do you what do you think that's about for the people who are trying to help? Because most people I met that are highly confrontational actually believe that they're helping. I wonder, Joel, whether sometimes it's and I see this maybe in healthcare. It's this: I have this information and this knowledge, and I need you to have it. I need you to have it because if I I think if you've got this information and this knowledge, you will you will behave differently. Therefore, I'm going to push it onto you because what I'm telling you, if you just knew this, then maybe you would change. So I I think sometimes it's about that that you know that expert stance, but maybe not coming from a bad place. That the idea is that you know if I share what I know, that that's that's enough. And if I share it forcefully, that that comes with the importance of it. And so it's it's that it's persuasion, but persuasion coming from from knowledge. Like I I I know this about you, and if you knew this about you, you you would just change. And so you can see that in trainings when when and I, I think I have a slide in my training that says something like I get all of this eliciting stuff, but how do I give information and advice? Because people are busting to know that. They're absolutely busting to know that because they've got this repository that they want to give to people. Um, and, and I don't think, I mean, my context is healthcare and I don't think that's unique to healthcare, but people really have a training model, which is let's fill you up with all this knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then the gap is how do you usefully provide and convey that to somebody else? We don't do that bit. We just fill. Because, yeah, we replicate the same yeah. learning method that we learn by. We get filled up with all this knowledge. So now we want to fill someone else up with all the knowledge. But I also think, that, yeah, helpers want to help. One of the things I found really helpful was uh, as a conference presentation around the development of borderline personality disorder and the presenter was talking about the exposure literature so not your classic um phobia exposure but just this broader body of literature talking about healing comes from exposure healing comes from being able to actually contact and sit with the thing that we are most afraid of because a lot of the things that hurt us are all the behaviors that we do to avoid experiencing that discomfort and it kind of got me thinking, oh, well, maybe ambivalence is exposure therapy of a sort. It's allowing people to experience their ambivalence 
because the natural urge is to want to shut it down. There is such discomfort in it. And it might just also be exposure therapy for ambivalence for clinicians as well, because we also want to shut it down, but in the opposite direction. So clients are more likely to want to go and excuse the language, but in the work I've done, you know, so often the two words that go before unwanted or unintended drug use is, oh, fuck it, and they'll then go and use. Whereas I think clinicians, workers are having the same kind of discomfort and it becomes, I'll give them information. Oh, I'll just, and now we've got two people who are avoiding the ambivalence. And so I think MI is a way of helping clinicians to tolerate sitting with and holding space for ambivalence so that the real work can happen for clients to sit with and experience and tolerate their own ambivalence so they can really actually tune in and pay attention to what am I actually thinking? What am I actually feeling? What do I really want to do here? And I think maybe too, but Helen, it's based, like certainly when I've engaged in the writing reflex, it's with the belief that I say the right thing with the right tone of voice at the right time, that person's going to have their paradigm shift. And that's the belief that I sit with. It's somehow... It's not going to be an incremental change for them. They're going to have this profound shift. And I've, you know, I've fallen into that trap many times and gone, oh my God, there it is. It's that belief that I've somehow uh, have the power in that moment to create a paradigm shift in someone else. And the need, you're, you're talking about the, the desire to sort of uh, not so much avoid the ambivalence, but to uh, feel like I can affect large change in a moment is what drives me. Which is also then reinforced by the system when you've got key performance indicators. Absolutely. When I was went into alcohol, we were only allowed to count the episodes of care where people met some of the significant yeah. goals that we identified on day one when we barely when we yeah. barely knew them. And I feel so much for diabetes nurse educators. It's in their title. <laughs> it's like the system kind of says, if we can just do X, we can get behaviour change in a third party. So it keeps on being reinforced as well. And here's a lovely framework that goes, Maybe it's just not the best way of going about the work. And that irony, I think, which I think gets a lot of people intrigued in and puzzled in MI of when we slow the work down, maybe we actually move faster mm. because we're doing all this work to try and speed it up the change that might just be actually getting in the way. Like Steve's, uh, remember Steve Volnick saying, um, if you behave like you've got 15 minutes, it might take all day. If you behave like you've got all day, it might take 15 minutes. I want to bring a slightly different perspective too, um, because I think the idea of confrontation often I think also comes from anxiety on the part of the worker, particularly when you're working mm -hmm. in, 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 in areas where there is an almost um, – there's acute risk towards other people. Like a lot of stuff, a lot of conditions we work with are ongoing, but we're thinking about family violence, sexual violence, there's an immediacy to the issues. There's an immediacy that we go, oh, I need to fix this. I need to worry about this. So, so I think that's where I see the writing reflex kind of really kicking in. 
um, and, and, and in people going. So, so the, it's actually the anxiety on the part of the worker to hold, as you say, Helen, to hold that space, to really invite the person to figure that out and, and then take a position of resistance against the dominant behaviour, whatever we, you know, we want to see that. So I think there's something in, that, in that, that, that that really invites us to get worried and anxious and therefore we're going to go, I need to fix it right now. And that's, I think, when, when it really brings out our, our inner tyrant, as I say sometimes on the part of workers, is that we start to really you know, give people a really hard time, like your example, Tiffany, when you were sitting in a treatment group, you know, that idea. And I think that's about anxiety on the part of the worker. So I think that idea of also how do we help staff in those more in those kind of acute areas to kind of just just be relaxed just to be in the moment to be able to have a conversation and then transact the relationship the person has with the behavior because that's the neutrality in fact in terms of MI brings I think to the conversation that idea of an inner tyrant's a really interesting one Ken um I it just made me think that I would I would use that and, and park it, but I wonder if extending it to the the inner evangelist or the the inner savior or the inner white knight, um, because I think there's different motivations that 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 sort of trigger that writing reflex that that we all that we all have. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's that's a, a really really helpful idea. Um, I think sometimes too we we maybe um, in the description and the holistic approach we take with MI, we make it uh, more complicated than it needs to be. And I had a, a, a doctor in, in one of the sessions I ran. It was a one-hour just, you know, intro session, and he came up to me earnestly at the end of the session and he sort of stood in front of me and he said, so you're telling me I need to get the families to make the argument for change. He was a paediatrician. You're telling me I need to get the families to make the arguments for change. I'm like, uh-huh. So I can do that. And I think that that's, that's also the thing. Like, you know, I mean, people have to come to that themselves, but I, I think we, we set something that's unachievable for people to take away the things that are going to be um, sustainable for them. Uh, and there will be some people who dive into MI and they'll become co- cl- clinicians whose um, sessions would be gold standard codable. But I don't think there's many of those. And and um, maybe from this part of the world as well, we just don't have the infrastructure to support it. Uh, and so sometimes it's very much about what are you going to take away from this that you think is a skill that will, a skill or an approach or a way of being that will change change the the feeling in your in your clinical practice or in your practice um and and that that example was moving from that sort of that that inner white knight to actually my role is to get them to to make the arguments for change and I know we talk about those things really simply but um it's not simple and and people making those small changes is really powerful I think Helen you and I've talked about uh sometimes people just come away with like one question that they're going to ask differently. Um, and that, that that can be a real tipping point in a practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think, I think, I mean, just to kind of get on the tail end of the, the confrontational thing is I, 
I agree with what everybody's saying for sure is that, you know, and at least my, my reflections looking back at sad to say a bit of myself in the early days, but a lot more of my colleagues was that, you know, I would, I, I would hear counselors arguing and demeaning clients and group therapy mm -hmm. sessions like Tiffany mm -hmm. was talking about. And, you know, my, my overall sense was why people did that was because they felt like they had to do something to be helpful. They felt frustrated. They felt anxious. They felt that, you know, somebody needed to give them the hard word or, or what, or this is what worked for me or whatever it was. But the the problem the problem with that, and I think it was Alan Zukoff that I heard first say this, is that that kind of approach is like a pokey machine because every now and then it works, and that intermittent reinforcer just reinforces yeah. the belief that it works because that's the person who comes back six months later and said, you know, that's exactly what I needed, Joel. I needed someone to put a foot up my ass, you know. But forget about the other fifty people I've worked with in the time frame that I have no idea where they're from, what's happening with them. Uh, I, you'd extend that even further, that the people who don't go away and do what it is that you very wisely told them to do, they're therefore uh, bad clients or bad patients or bad uh, consumers. Uh, so, you know, that that's the other the other flip side of that is that someone goes away and does what you say, they're, they're good patients or they're good clients. Uh, if they go away and they don't, then it's not about you. It's their bad clients, um, and so I think, I think that's that's a risk too, a, a really <laughs> quite a sizable one. And Joel's just turned into a rocket. <laughs> yes, indeed, it's always been a rocket. Um, in a in a funny way, like it's it's actually reinforcing the mechanics of MI. If we take that. Kind of central principle of I learn what I believe I, as I hear myself speak. When the clinician's doing all the talking, they're often the one who gets convinced. And, we'll, and I'm sure everyone has had had this experience. If you do that that taste of MI exercise where you compare what it feels like to use a directive and then the darn C questions, and the number of times the person who is worker A you know, doing the directive approach saying by the end of it, I was convinced that that was a really good idea. It's kind of that's exactly the mechanics that we're looking to harness in MI, but it's the wrong mouth being open. Absolutely. And, and if we think about, and I think that the idea of what's the legacy we leave, I think that's the stuff that we don't talk about. There's a lovely study just done in Australia, 1907 men who went off to therapy. 44% dropped out, 26% dropped out after the first session. Now, you know, we, we think about that, there's something wrong, right, if that's the case. Now, you know, um, there's a whole, maybe a whole lot of reasons for that, but it got me thinking about the idea, how many of those men will go back to help-seeking behaviour down the track? So there's something also about a respectful approach that means that actually we mightn't get that together this time around, but next time around I'm going to be open to coming back and having another go. So I think that you know my worry is that 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 that, that practice that 50 people we talk about, you know, you talked about Joel, um, if they're not if they then get turned off the possibility of helping behaviour, that's got huge implications back into their lives and into the lives back into their families. 
and I think we we can't underestimate. So I think the, um, the the implications of bad practice. I think that's what I think MI gives us an antidote to that. Yeah, Kilda, I, just, I agree with that. I just okay. saw in the in the questions. Um, I think David Rosengren had put in there that um, with that that writing reflex and the desire to tell, there's there's some passion in that. Um, and like even when we heard Tiffany talking about, you know, I'm it's the right time and the you know the right information and I'm going to make a big difference. That that there's there's good heart in that. Um, and I think uh, I think I don't I mean I don't know the answer, but how do you tap into that? And in June I ran with uh, some fabulous colleagues here uh, uh, to one just one day allied health motivational interviewing training sessions and before the the clinicians started their um their day they were asked to write down what are the things that you find most challenging in the conversations that you have with people about change and I think that the thing that stood out to me was people wrote things like I hear myself being preachy and I don't want to be like that so I I actually think that that people people have got this sense of I want to give but it's, it's not landing right, um, and and I think we need to tap into that. I think that that's something really, really useful. Uh, just as an aside, I also saw in the chat somebody had talked about the Gloria tapes. I'd completely forgotten about those, but, oh, goodness, I was um, I was competing and doing wrestling at the time, and I think I, I, think I had uh, quite, quite a bit of... Bit of uh, engagement in the idea that I quite like to slam some of those some of those psychologists onto the mat because oh my goodness that talking at was awful. But um, yeah, the real point I wanted to make was that that people do come with that desire to want to help, um, and 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 I think they even you know people even know like we all did that um, the, that preachy kind of talk at approach is 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 not getting them what they want so maybe like when what we do with health behavior change we need to tap into as a clinician what is it that you want um you know in the way that you work and get people get people to really connect with that and i I wonder if on some level if people feel like you know it makes me feel better to do that talk at preachy approach i feel better i feel like i've done my job exactly how is you're gonna say something well is this gonna oh a couple of things i do think one of the hardest things for a helper whatever role that is for you to do is to feel like you're not being helpful like it is it actually hurts to see someone suffering and feel like you're doing nothing to alleviate it and you'd rather be doing something than nothing and i think coming back to to one of your comments can you know a fundamental rule of practice is above all do no harm and if we do nothing else particularly with a person who maybe isn't ready to make change right now if we can at least not create an allergy to helpers that if people go well okay I didn't make change I didn't do what the doctor told me I should do or that I didn't see the point of that but I felt respected I felt like that was a um, a, a decent conversation or I felt like I was treated as a real equal, I might be more likely to go back at another point when I am a bit more ready. You know, and I think if if, if I think about what's my own processing learning MI, my first question was 
what is MI? And then am I doing MI? And then am I doing MI well? And now I think my question is, is what I'm doing working? MI gives us some very learnable, countable, concrete, observable things that we can pay attention to, to check in with how am I going in my half of the conversation because it's the only half of the conversation I've got control over. I don't think that one of the things I certainly connected with is it's a very mostly friendly version, whereas a lot of other approaches have talked about what's going on for me in my half in like the broader theories and therapies feels quite critical. Even the language of like transference and counter-transference and um, the, the, like there's something going wrong here. Mm. Whereas MI has these quite neutral, friendly ways of describing this might be what's going on here and here's some things that you can do instead or here's some things that you can practice and I think that's, it, it does give people those next steps. It's like if you want to get stronger, you've got to get the reps in. You, know, you might ask permission before offering information X number of times. Something's beginning to get a little bit more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there's another point, but I'll come back to it later. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, the the one thing I love about this webinar, whatever this thing is, is it's just a conversation, you know. And and one of the things I'm a couple things I'm picking up on and and that we've come up with is one is MI MI is 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 a way of working with people, right? There's a particular way of putting all these parts together to do motivational interviewing, but it's also a way of thinking about change and the way of thinking about how I'm going to engage with somebody and how somebody engages with themselves around change, you know? And I think what you said is so true. I forgot what might've been Kylie or Helen is that, you know, change is hard. It takes, it takes a lot of effort for people to, to, to do, you know, speaking personally, you know, that first step's the big one sometimes, but it's hard to do and it's easy to avoid. Um, but I think one thing motivational interviewing has given me, it's given me a way to think about how people within themselves think about changing. And this is where the ambivalence comes in. And and one of the things that, that you know, I found myself thinking about and saying in trainings over the last year is what I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to join the conversation that the person is having in their own head around change, but not in the soapboxy, preachy, you know, what, you know, way of looking at things. I just want to come in and join it and not try to be persuasive or confrontational in that. And it's an, it's really help me to contain my own, what did Steve used to call it? Um, ABC's aspirations for behavioral change with the clients. You know, this is their thought. It's their process. I'm here as a, as somebody to lend a hand. 
I'm, I'm kind of intrigued too that the the idea that um, you know we think about the writing reflex, and, and I think in some behaviours people are experiencing it outside before people even come even near us, right? So people have been telling them they need to change, and so there's often that comes from family or magistrates or whoever really in, in their lives. So so the writing so they've been battling against that writing reflex, I think, a lot. So. So, you know, I think often people come into the room going, you're just the same. You're going to be telling me what to do. Um, and, and so they're kind of almost in that place of, of have, having their armour on, being quite defended and going, yep, bring it on. And, and I think that we need to understand that journey that people get to us. And, um, and I think we need to get, I think what EMI offers is a different experience. Um, that actually we are there to help them to sit with and explore. Because we may be the first person who's actually sat down with them and actually had a decent conversation about these things that probably scare them, scare them greatly. Um, you know, I've worked with many men in, in, in sexual violence and family violence who, you know, they don't feel great about what they're doing. Um, and, and, and often they've got real shame that gets attached to those behaviours. So how do we sit down and actually engage them in a conversation around safety of other people, responsibility, accountability, um, as opposed to bullying them? And I think that's often mm. where I come from. That's often been the experience. So if people are coming in with the expectation that we're just like everybody else, then they come and just, just well, they're defended. I think, um, and what EMI does, I think it helps us to soften that um, and, and, and engage in a different kind of way of being. I think actually, Ken, maybe that point you brought up earlier, and it's maybe something you were to mention, Helen, you know, often I would hear train people at training say, oh, you know, they'll come back when they're ready. And I always wondered about that and thought that then attributes the... Uh, the responsibility for their readiness is entirely theirs, whereas maybe what I did contributed them not being ready. And actually, they were ready, but I contributed by acting in, in that way of giving of the writing reflex, or maybe I asked many more questions than I offered reflections, and they didn't really feel heard, and they didn't really feel understood but they were ready. And I've always wondered about that concept of come back when you're ready. And, and I think today I, I don't, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm undecided perhaps about the concept of readiness when I think a counsellor behaviour can have a profound impact on, on that journey for someone to move them from maybe, you know, from that self-determination theory of feeling ex totally externally motivated um, to taking that a journey through being heard, through having their uh, their own inner intelligence activated by reflecting their change talk back and softening their reasons for not changing, and they get to move from a feeling pressure to change to a growing internal desire to change. Mm -hmm. And I think we as clinicians have that. Uh, have the skill, and that's what I loved about MI. It gave her some really concrete things that I could do that may help that process for someone. 
because lots of what uh, people that I saw in the addiction field, and I know you'd get the same too, Ken, in, in the sort of intimate partner or family violence field, is they're, pres- they're there because they feel pressured to change, not because they feel, uh, or, or maybe more so than a, than a, than a desire. But if I hear them and hear their pudako, hear their story, that can shift. And I have, for me, I suppose I, I believe that. And I may be carrying that belief and is, has, I think, helped me. That they're there, where I, and, and I think I've lost some attachment to the idea of readiness. Well, there's some optimism there as well that allows the openness because I guess there's also that question of what are people ready for when we talk about readiness, because readiness for change is only just one bit. There's also yeah. readiness for a conversation. And then a little bit more personal, it's readiness for a conversation with us. Someone might be ready for a conversation, but if we're not engaging with them in a way that feels comfortable, they won't be ready for a conversation with us. And I think another question that we maybe, you know, we, we do get more comfortable in MI asking, you, how ready is this person for change? How often do we really stop and say, how ready am I for this person? How ready am I for this conversation? Nice. That's a good, good point. Good question yeah. to ask. I, I, I agree. And I think I think what MI does is it gives people some, some structure to do a couple of things. One, to get ready for, for the conversation. And one of the things that I that 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 that's really cool about it is. I can be in the conversation, but it's my job not, it's not my job to fix this person. Mm. Right. That well, I remember when I my first very first training in MI with Bill Miller, he that was one of the first things he said in the training was, you know, it's not your job to fix people. I'm like, what are you talking about? I wasn't trained that way. I'm a, I'm a I'm a I'm a psychological mechanic. You come in and show me what's broken and I need to fix it, you know, and it's my fault if I can't. Um and so that's been really that's been really helpful because it's taken a lot of pressure off. And as somebody said, you know, it's a lot less, it's a lot less um, exhausting. Exhausting to 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 take that to to drop that need to fix. There's, you know, as Helen talked about the therapeutic sneeze, you know, problem solution. You know, <laughs> you know, I don't have to come up with all the solutions and all the answers. I, I think it's worth too building into this kind of conversation that there are different kinds of people that uh, different kinds of um, roles that people meet MI from. So, so you know, m- most of us have done therapeutic work with people. That's a conversation. That's a therapeutic conversation. But people uh, in in a whole range of sort of the healthcare sector having conversations with people that wouldn't be described as counselling or or psychological therapy in any way, but that concept that Helen talked about, what can I do in my half of the conversation that's helpful, is where they can meet MI. And um, Helen and and I and a couple of others from the MI community, I think it might have just been Stan, we went to Sydney uh, a long time ago and we ran some short, sharp sessions um, on on motivational interviewing for gastroenterologists um, and uh, rheumatologists and cardiologists, I think they were. And I caught the bus back to the uh, airport sitting alongside uh, one of the gastroenterologists and just said, oh, you know, how'd you find the last couple of days? And a whole range of things going on. And he said, 
actually, I think one of the things I'm taking away is that I spend a lot of time doing professional development about surgery and, you know, my knowledge of, of disorders. And I've, I've actually lost touch with the fact that most of what I do is via the conversations I have with people. And mm. I just don't think mm. about how mm. I do that. And, and I think, I think we all fall into that trap. Like that, that really stood out to me as being, as being something to remember in working with healthcare professionals that, that it is as important a skill as the surgery, as the, the knowledge about medications, as, as all those other things. And, and, and that was the awareness taken away. But I think, I think we sometimes jump in with, with maybe, shall I say it as an MI trainer, with maybe our sort of inner evangelist, our inner, like, um, uh, you know, uh, maybe not tyrant. I think evangelist is probably more like, like we, we want people to grab it all and take it all, whereas, whereas I still think that there's a lot more room for people being uh, taking first steps. And if we were talking with a client, uh, we wouldn't say, right, so you're, you know, established that they want to be able to do this and then give them all the steps at once and say, now we expect that that's, that's how you'll achieve that. We would always start with the first steps. And I don't think we give, I don't think we give trainees or health professionals or whatever, whatever type of helper, I don't think we give helpers that same courtesy, that same understanding of behaviour is change because we, we, introduce them to MI and then almost expect that they they will jump jump on board in the deep end and be able to do it all whereas first steps first steps so yeah I just I'll stop talking but I, that 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 just <laughs> always hits me when we, we would never do that with somebody we were in a helping role with but we do do that to our helping professional colleagues when we're trying to think about MI um, and I I'm trying to remind myself first steps and there is part of that baked into our professional development model. You know, I will often talk with people about I did not learn MI the way I am teaching MI. I did not get two days with a crazy hamster up the front of a room giving, you know, trying to, you know, give an entire <laughs> framework in two days. It took me six years to before I think I did a, a two-day workshop and it was fabulous because I had no idea what I was getting wrong. <laughs> I could just try a bit. <laughs> and the reason I really gravitated towards MI was because when I tried a bit, I liked the conversation I got back, so I looked forward to trying it again. And how do we help people find that kind of just one step at a time while at the same time I think there is a responsibility when we get asked to run MI training to give a sense of what this whole framework is because I think we've probably also all met people who have been taught a bit of MI and they think that's all it is. I've had some people come back at the end of a workshop and say, look, I just want to let you know I rated myself at the end of the workshop as being lower in confidence and knowledge than I did at the beginning and it's not because I lost confidence or I lost knowledge. I just realised that what I thought was MI was a lot smaller than what it actually is and it was helpful to get a sense of this framework but how do we then help people find and where's your place here what might be a next step mm. it makes me think of is it um Ian McEwen in New oh, Zealand yeah. Yeah. yeah 
goodness. Uh, anyone, if you, if you, uh, anyone, beautiful, beautiful man. And he, um, I remember him talking at a conference as part of the Drug and Alcohol Professionals Association. They'd done a survey of members on their knowledge and confidence on different common interventions in drug and alcohol work. And he said that most of them had this same pattern. If someone rated themselves high in knowledge, for example, on cognitive behaviour therapy, they often rated themselves as fairly high in confidence in using that approach. MI was the outlier. And they had far more often they had people rate themselves high in knowledge in MI but low in confidence because it is a skill. It is a discipline. It is something that takes time and practice. And how do we help people enjoy the process? It's like if you can't play Moonlight Sonata on the piano at concert performance level, just don't start with chopsticks. You know, how do we get that love of hitting a note? How do we get that love of combining a couple of notes? How do we get that love of, I played a one minute piece of music, knowing that maybe down the track, it might be Moonlight Sonata, it might be, who knows, Vakmaninoff. But it's that process, but we have that kind of, often we get this pressure on people to go, now I've learned it, I should be doing it. And how do we create space for enjoying the learning, enjoying even the mistakes, the setbacks? Because you can even be doing perfect textbook, am I, and not be getting back the conversation that you maybe hope for. You could be doing what is definitely not textbook perfect, am I, but it might be a much better conversation because it's not really technical, but it's two humans really connecting. Mm. How do we make room for that without losing the essence of, and MI has this framework, this structure, this set of skills that we can deliberately, intentionally learn, practice and get better at. I heard somebody describe MI as being a, an approach to communication that's like driving a Porsche. Uh, but in most contexts, you could probably, you know, manage manage with a, I don't know, a Ford Escort or, or whatever, whatever a little little sort of beat up run around is, you know, um, a little little uh, Toyota Corolla. Um, so I, and I kind of like that because you're still driving a car but maybe 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 you're just not quite as smooth or as sharp and 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 you find that like the the parts of the conversation where you you are driving the car but but you know it's not a slick gear change or you know you didn't take that bend very well um because you're a bit clunky but you're still driving a car and i kind of like that and it's a as a car that you've never driven on that road before because we've yes, never had that's true too with that human ever before, we would never have that conversation with that human ever again. Every conversation's unique. So there can't be such a thing as a perfect conversation. And we know from the therapy literature of, you know, sometimes healing happens after there's been a rift or a breach in your therapeutic relationship that's been healed in a really helpful way, even just acknowledging, I don't think, I took the right, I don't think I took a helpful approach there. I'm sorry. What what did you need from me? In itself might be, oh, 
wow, you're paying attention to this conversation. You're paying attention to how this is going for me. One, one, of, the, one of the things that, that I'm thinking about as I'm listening to y'all talk is that I know that, you know, when, when, when you meet people in an, in an, an, an uh, introductory training and they'll say things like, oh, I think I'm already doing MI, right? I feel, you know, I, I feel like I'm already doing MI, particularly when you talk about the spirit of MI and they go, oh, yeah, I'm already doing that. And, and, then, and then as they go through the training, a lot of times they realize, well, actually, I'm not doing MI, but I'm doing some things like MI. And I wonder, and I do a very similar thing as what you were talking about, Helen, is I don't tell people they need to, you know, it's a Friday afternoon, now Monday morning at nine o'clock with your first client, you need to do motivational interviewing. It's more like you need to ease into the water, right? Just listen to yourself. Practice. Listen to how many questions you ask. Ask some open-ended questions. You know, put your foot in the water with a reflection or two and get some positive reinforcing feedback that actually I feel like I can do this and see how people reply. But what I'm, what I'm, I guess where I'm going is now what I would say is if somebody said, you know, what is your approach? And I've quit kind of thinking about what my theoretical orientation of my approach is. They say, is your approach MI? And, is, and I go, no, it's not really. Because I was trained in client-centered and existential humanistic psychotherapy before I met motivational interviewing. And then I met motivational interviewing. And now a lot of what I do has a flavor or a feeling of MI. It's influenced different areas in the way I practice and the way I think about sitting down with somebody and working with somebody and engaging with somebody. So I'm, and, and I think that's been a good thing to my practice. I think it's enhanced my ability to, to work with people irrespective of what we're working on. So I think if you looked at my work with the client, if I think I record a session, we put it up, it'd be like, wow, that sounds like he's doing, you know, a lot of motivational interviewing things. And they'd be like, yeah, but I'm not doing that as intentionally as I would if somebody said, I got really mixed feelings about quitting drinking. And I'm going, oh, am I time, you know? Um, so I wonder if that's something that MI offers people as well, even if they're not, they don't know that they're doing it, it starts to influence and 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 guide the way they, they work with people. Yeah, I think we wrote on this, Joel, um, years back, but just that difference between an MI-informed conversation and a pure MI conversation, but the best way to get the, like, the best of both is to be able to do a pure MI, you know, to be able to use the skills, sustain the skills for a short focus period of time helps you use them in that more flexible way. But often we're looking for where's my MI moment, the principles, the skills of MI that will not get you coding on the mighty at a competent level, maybe what helps have that landscape of a conversation that more of those MI moments might happen, but it's that moving in and out. And it'll yeah, and it can weed out those MI non-adherent skills that might have been there before. Mm, 
I think it, it comes full circle back to that the notion of way of being. And mm-hmm. I trained um, some uh, really fabulous primary care nurses to use MI in uh, conversations about change in priority areas that were already identified by an algorithm. And so they got this sort of kit of, Here's, here's a plan uh, or at that that we want you to now have a conversation with a patient about. And, and, and as part of that, what we discovered was people changed their priority areas, which was great. But the, these nurses, I actually looked at their, their, their conversations and coded it. But for me, the standout piece was that one of the nurses also worked in the intensive care unit at a major hospital. And she said that the thing that she took away from MI was to change her way of being with people. So she would routinely, with good good intent, which we've talked about, and wanting something for the, the, the patient to be helpful, she would routinely go in and say, all right, let's get you up out of bed today for at least, you know, 15 minutes because you'll feel better. And she switched that up to, and it's such a simple thing to, what would, what would make you feel a little bit better today? Um, and if the person couldn't generate anything, a menu of options. So you could sit out or we could we could organise a bath or, you know, maybe a cup of hot tea. Well, what, what would make you feel better? Um, and to me that was that that's sort of taking some of the essence of what you're talking about, Joel, and, and it doesn't, we don't have to always overcomplicate it, I think. No, we don't have to overcomplicate it by any means. <laughs> But, but, you know, just like, you know, there's never the perfect conversation. Things don't always go right. We, we, we have a tendency to almost a desire to sometimes overcomplicate things, you know. I, I do think this is where there's a little underbelly of motivation mm. interviewing as well, that it can be a perfectionist nightmare because it does give you things to count and rate and check that there is this idea of if you're not getting two, three reflections for every question, the majority are complex, that you know, there's there's these countable and that you at least a four out of five on this on the rating scale, it can sometimes leave people disheartened. If I can't hit it all, maybe I shouldn't try any of it. Doesn't we that need- sound like patients or clients yeah. who are trying to change other behaviors? Absolutely. So I think we need to be mindful of that when we're training MI, when we're learning MI, when we're trying it out, um, that there is this, because there is such a lovely research mindset sitting alongside MI as well, this real curiosity of, well, we think this is helpful, but is it? In order to do good research, things have to be more standardised. They have to be more comparable. We need things like coding. We just need to watch that it's not mistaken for the real thing. And on an even deeper level, there's that idea of is it even about MI? That's the most helpful thing that we're learning when we learn MI. I tend to think of it as a gateway drug and when we look at the when we one of the things I think is playing out in a lot of fields is we want to be evidence-based but what evidence are we looking at we look at okay what evidence is there on this specific treatment 
when we stand back and look at well, what does the full picture of evidence say when there's all the process literature that says what are the common elements of helping conversations you know things like the research that indicates that your relationship with your prescriber will have an impact on how effective that medication is i think that's wild and that mi is a learnable trainable way into those common elements but those common elements are probably more magical they're probably more fundamental and more helpful but mi gives us a very friendly doable way in and it, it makes me think of when i first met mi one of the things that really intrigued me was i liked the people who liked mi yes you know, I, I sort of and i think in the early days i kind of went yeah and that's because they've got good judgment and yes they were people with very good judgment but i'm also sort of stepping back and going oh well i like the people who liked mi because these deeper principles were infused in not just what they did when they had a client in front of them, but who they were, you know, every human in front of them. And what a shame if we missed that. I always remember a, a workshop years ago with Terry where she said, getting to the point of thinking when you have people come to an introduction to motivational interviewing, maybe we need one of those research disclaimers you know, that you, you've got a sign to go, yes, I give consent to participate in this and I know that I can withdraw at any time because learning MI can change you. And certainly in my own experience, I believe has changed me for the better. But what a shame if we miss that, like this very human element of what actually works when humans get together to talk about difficult stuff particularly within that therapeutic container. MI is a way in. It's just a really very well articulated and elegant way in. Mm. I often think about, um, what's resonating for me, Helen, as I hear you talk, is this idea of um, the image I have is sitting on a park bench sort of side by side, sort of just talking, looking out of the distance and, and thinking about what's possible here, right? So again, then the conversation, just being able to sort of in that, that much more thoughtful, relaxed thing. Could I, could I go back to some of the, the, the Duncan, Hubble and Miller work, right, around, you know, what do we know about what's effective? We know that 30% of change is about the therapeutic alliance, that, and that's, that's huge, right? The relationship we establish. 15% is about hope. So people have to actually think that there is something here, that there may be there's some possibility that life can be better. Um, 15% about technique. How much time do we spend teaching people technique as opposed to actually just get the relationship right? That's the stuff you're talking about. And then we sort of build on that stuff around what's the person bringing the door, who walks in with them, you know, in terms of their, their family, their whanau. You know, who's the people actually who who, who want to affi and support the change they're kind of making. So, you know, I don't think we, can, we have to go too far in some ways to go, we kind of know what is effective. We kind of know that stuff, and I think you're right. We can get a little bit tied up, I think, in, 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 in you know ratios and things like that. But again, you know, the question really comes back to: Has the person going to come back and talk again? And, uh, and that's and, and as we know, when we do the kind of the, the down sea kind of exercise, you know, that's the first question we ask in the in the confrontational exercise: Would you talk to this person again? And, and most people say, No, I would not. 
And so that's right. really clear. But that second conversation, I say, yeah, of course, yeah, I, I felt I was really, it was about me telling my story. So mm. I think that's the sort of fundamental uh, litmus test in some ways about what's, what's good practice. And I think we sometimes get a little lost in those other things. Absolutely. Look, I think one of the profound things that's shifted, and this has only been in the, maybe the last five to ten years, is, is taking a cultural journey. And, and now I have a, an understanding of a process that I didn't have before. And what it did was change the language I use with the people that I work with. And in the process that Māori have, you go from a state of unknown to known, unsafe to safe, from darkness to light, um, and that process requires me to share something of who I am um, as part of that process, as well as, so they get an idea of that container that they're going to place their trust in. However, at the end of that process, your state is no longer counsellor client. You're now a family member. You are a part of my whānau. And when I took that and started to apply that, um, my whole practice changed. They were no longer clients. They were no longer uh, patients. They were whānau. They mm -hmm. were, and we might not be blood related, but we are now related through aroha, through, uh, through, through having been through a process of acknowledging that this person is unique to this world and their unique shape is essential for this world. And part of what I've loved about my culture is it gives recognition to that each individual shape and it's part of that process, that very first process we have of getting to know each other is I'm going to acknowledge your uniqueness and then I'm going to tell you a little bit about who I am. So you get a, a sense of that container of trust. And, and then we'll have a cup of tea at the end of that. That's what changes the state from being unknown to known, unsafe to safe, from being client to my whānau member. And I've loved it. And my whole practice has changed. And although it wasn't what I was taught or, or, or uh, that, you know, there was very clear boundaries and therapeutic boundaries, I felt more authentic seeing someone as my whānau member than seeing them as a client. And it's allowed me to be more authentic to who I am. And that's changed my practice. And it fits so well with all the philosophy, the, the spirit of MI, of, of partnership, of, you know, of evocation and that notion of, man, you've got to tell us, you've got, you've got an acorn that knows it's an oak tree inside you. And um, and that sense of uh, of of a love acceptance when they were in absolute worth, you know, accurate empathy, and I forgot the other two just off the top of my head, but you know they incorporated. <laughs> how long have we been doing this for? Um, but they but they fit it so well with my understanding of who I was as Maori and bringing this process in. And when you were talking, Ken, about Fano, um, you know we. And working for a Māori service, we didn't see the uh, whoever came to our service never seen as an individual. They were seen as part of a collective, mm. and and that so to be <clears throat> working as part of that collective. So you're now Fano to me, and your Fano is Fano to me. 
it's just, I know, it just changed my sense of responsibility. Uh, not that it had to be a responsibility for them, but I had a responsibility to them. And it changed that. And I could just be more natural, more easy, and yet have all of those wonderful skills of asking permission to give, you know, some information of reflections and questions and those oars, which are just so wonderful to have that person have their story witnessed and, and them being seen. And so I think part of my journey with MI has also been how my cultural values have shaped my practice of MI and they've they've had a relationship together. They've had a real partnership together. And your your energy when you describe that is is actually really beautiful. And uh, what what strikes me is that you've found this way of practicing which is mm-hmm. just really authentic and has has a, a sense mm-hmm. of this genuineness of respect for for people and belonging. And I think there's probably something in that for us who don't have the the richness of that cultural underpinning that that authenticity is is less exhausting to, to pick up on that word from earlier like you there's an energy in what you describe and I think it brings the the joy and the the engagement to the work that you do um, that that we do and so even though I even though I I I you know, I listen and I'm trying to really understand that depth because it's it's so beautiful that what I take away from it is is um, a real sort of uh, surety in the value of authenticity yeah. and and I think when when I feel like I'm myself in the session using those skills using them intentionally that's that's where that's where the to use Helen's word from previously that's where the magic is um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And we're, we're, we're coming down to the last few minutes and we'll do a round of closing comments. And Tippi, I don't know if you remember when, um, I don't know how long ago it was, I came in to Teatro Marino and I worked with with with, with Tofano up there. And it was, a again, every time I do a, a training with Maldi, it's a, it's a whole different experience than I ever anticipate. But I can't even remember what all we talked about, but I remember I was learning, y'all were learning, and at the end of it, one of the guys, you know, had kind of said, okay, now you're part of us, Joel, and we're mm, going to give you a molded name, Joda. you know, and, um, and I've carried that with me ever since. And that, that sort of sense of, of feeling and, and acceptance that you're talking about. Mm. And then there was another experience that, that Ken just reminded me of. And um, I was doing a training on a Marai outside of Napier. And um, I was doing it with Camilla Werner, an Inuit uh, woman from uh, from the U.S. who uh, wrote the motivational interviewing and Native Americans uh, book. And um, we had done our bit of training and I was sitting on a bench and the Kamatoa came up and sat down and he said, you know, this MI isn't much different than what we do here. This is why we have this bench that looks out because you can sit here and I can sit here and you can tell me your story and we can just talk. Kilda. You know? And alongside. Like, alongside. I can yes, just come alone. alongside and we can just talk. And 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 you know, those those 
are things that, you know, the experience are things that have been part of who I am now. And it's, and it's been great, right? It's been, it's been, it's been a very humbling and, and wonderful experience, but I think, I think motivational interviewing, it just works well and plays well with mm. not only other approaches, but other people, other human mm. beings from different places who speak different languages and don't have the same worldviews. There's something about the 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 universality of aspects of motivational interviewing that just seem to work. Um, and you know. I'm not going to proselytize about motivational interviewing, you know, but but it 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 um I think it is approach that the if you learn it and you understand it and you just practice parts of it, it it's gonna make your practice better. It can't not. I mean, just doing the spirit of motivational interviewing isn't gonna hurt anybody. So that those are my closing comments, and I'd love to hear what what y'all have to say. And you know, it's been a fast hour and a half, and it's been beautiful to spend time with y'all. I feel mm. like it was pre-COVID when we would actually all get together and hang out. Um, yeah. So you know, how about if we start with you, Ken? What, what are your takeaways and closing? Oh, thoughts? look, my, my takeaways are, and of course, you know, thinking about sort of the, this this approach. And I think it is about relationships. It is about actually giving people an experience of a relationship. You're talking about it, Tiffany, and, and, and I think we've all been talking about it today. If, if we can get a strong relationship, because that's what I think EMI is. It's about, it's about the ability to sit and talk about tough stuff um, with a huge ambivalence generally. And, uh, or, or there might be really re high resistance to that. But it's about the ability to sit in a conversation, and, and it may be a conversation that takes a long time, over time, not just a one-off session, but a conversation over time. And we, we help people. We, I think that's the helpful bit. We help people to resolve that. And, uh, and so then they've, they've got a way forward. And, and the other thing that I take away is that no one isn't, no good old, um, no man is an island, you know, if you want to take that um, John Dunn quote, um, that we're all connected. And, um, and so we're connected because what, what someone, what I work with someone that I say in the family violence area, one's man, one man's violence is a message to all women, but also impacts on all men. So, you know, that whole idea that, that we, we are not immune from the work that others do and what we do, and they're not immune from the work that, that we do. So, you know, it's about that community kind of spirit, really. So, yeah. It's me. All right. Kylie. Oh, well, it's been fun today. I think I'll take away the importance, that absolute essential importance of engagement, um, the need to do so with authenticity and that like the people that we work with in our helping professions, to have those conversations, all of us can always come back to what are the first steps, what's the next thing I'm going to build into, how I have my conversations to achieve that. Yep. That's a good opportunity to shut up. Uh, and, um, and and I, th I remember, I think it was at uh, the last um, forum that we had and Bill sort of uh, reduced MI to loving kindness. And I think for me that 
those two words sort of I do my best to embody and, and I think MI's helped me be a better me. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Helen, you get to take us out. <laughs> it's making me think of the number of people who have come up at the end of a workshop and said things like, I came to this workshop wanting to change my client and I'm realising I'm the one who needs to change. There's this kind of paradox of MI is all about the person that we're talking with, but the way it works is by the work we need to do on ourselves. And Bill will talk about um, Benjamin Franklin talking about virtues. And, it's, and he apparently said it wasn't that you have these virtues and you behave in virtuous ways. It was the other way around, that when you engage in these virtuous behaviours, we acquire these virtues. And I do think there's things that are doable, learnable, things baked into MI that helps us be more that person that we want to be when we sit with someone. Um, and then, Tiffany, you are making me think of, I mean, really, if we want to bring it back to absolute fundamentals, it's about connecting on that level of the human funnel, the human family, and dissolving the us and them, that we are us in this conversation and how can this be a real connection, a real conversation about meaning? Can I just finish on one other thing? Motivational interviewing, can we just acknowledge that it's not the most awesome name for what we're talking about because we're not motivating anyone and we're not interviewing anyone. This is really about conversations about meaning. Um, and we just want to keep on coming back to that. So thank you for the opportunity, yeah. Joel. Lovely to connect with you all. Ironic that it has to be on a webinar rather than just yeah. sitting around the table. Well, there'll be a day we'll be sitting around a table again. That's for sure. sure. So, look, look, my friends, I really appreciate y'all taking the time out of your getting up early over there in Melbourne and uh, Valorat and Tiffany staying up late in Poland. Um, and Ken, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I, I'm fortunate, but I get to do that quite often. Um, and just thanks for thanks for sharing your thoughts, your ideas, and yourselves with me and each other and everybody who came along. And um, as a group, I'd just like to thank everybody who did come along. So thanks a lot for for staying up or being there, and and it's greatly appreciated. And we'll look forward to seeing you all again next month. Um, so. Take care, everybody, and we'll talk later. See you, folks. Ribby Poobah, a yee-haw bookum. <laughs>